Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, listeners, we have a bit of a confession to make, right, Ashley? Yes, (laughs) we do. We have not been so good at taking our own advice lately. And as much as I love working with Ashley, she and I are almost too similar in some ways. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) when we get overwhelmed individually, our tendency is to do stuff. And so when the two of us get together, we like to we like to do stuff. We like to do lots of stuff. Yeah. So we've been creating a lot. and We've been saying a lot. Working a lot. Working a lot. Mm-hmm. And we found ourselves just caught up in a lot of these um, doing things the past few months. And I think we finally realized that it's, it's time to pump the brakes. Mm-hmm. Originally, we'd planned to record today um, this episode about grief. But honestly, we realized that we just don't have that much to say about grief right now. Yeah. And that's in part because we're we're in the midst of grieving and it's hard to say anything meaningful, meaningful about that just being in the thick of it all. So we're going to shift gears and make some more space for listening and learning this summer. So what we've decided to do is to take the next couple of months off from recording full-length episodes so that we can take some time to rest and recover and do some other things. So instead of posting our typical full-length episodes every month, we'll be recording shorter episodes of Kindred's Picks. You can stay connected to what we're reading and studying and thinking about this summer. Yeah. So this is a reminder to ourselves and to all of you that it's okay and good to take a step back and change course and show ourselves a lot of compassion and grace as we do it. So yes, thank you for being patient with us as we change course. So Ashley, I'll start with you. What are you thinking about right now that you want to share with our listeners as food for thought? So I am thinking a lot lately about one of my favorite things in the whole world, the public library. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Leslie, no. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Although, no, she doesn't like the library. She hates the library. (laughs) That's true. Yes, she hates the library. I love the library. And that is maybe my only conflict with Parks and Recreation, to be totally (laughs) honest. So we've been talking a lot on recent episodes about divesting from Amazon, especially for books. Mm -hmm. And we've been lifting up supporting independent booksellers and websites like bookshop.org. But I also want to talk about a resource that a lot of us are familiar with from our grade school days, but may or may not use in our everyday lives, which is our local public libraries. I don't know about you, but my local library system is only just now beginning to open back up after, what, three months of being completely closed. closed. Yeah. Yeah, I think ours is beginning to offer some curbside services, Mm -hmm. but other than that, they've been closed. But I have been using our e-reader platform. Ours is called Hoopla. Others might have Libby or Overdrive as part of their library systems, but our Hoopla system allows access to all kinds of digital content and audiobooks. Honestly, my e-reader collection isn't normally very extensive, what our library offers, but this week I was browsing around and I found a ton of content for immediate download that is sold out in stores mm. and even some of the things that are currently hitting the bestseller list, like Me and White Supremacy in audio version and ebook. They also have the audio version of So You Want to Talk About Race. They have A People's History of the United States. 
books by feminist and womanist authors like Bell Hooks and Roxanne Gay. They have The Body is Not an Apology, which we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, they've got a ton of great stuff. And I really feel like if my very underfunded suburban Mississippi library has all of these books on e-reader for free. Yours probably does too. (laughs) So most of us know libraries for their book collections, but libraries offer so many essential services to communities beyond books that I want to make sure we all understand. There is an article on Bustle, which we'll link to in the show notes, called Seven Reasons Libraries Are Essential Now More Than Ever. And it was written in 2017, but I've found it to be completely relevant for this time we're in now. The article highlights the many ways that libraries benefit communities, like, number one, this is a big one, providing safe refuge for homeless folks, including a place to use the bathroom, access to internet, a place to charge a cell phone. There was a recent piece on Colorado Public Radio that we'll also put in the show notes. It was really interesting about how Denver Central Library is Denver's largest day shelter for unhoused people, which I thought was really powerful. Mm -hmm. So think about that. Think about how many folks have been affected by the government shutdown during COVID. And think about how many COVID-related assistance programs were offered online, like getting your stimulus checks or filing for unemployment. The library is often the only place that many people have access to the internet. So I think it's safe to say that libraries are vital for our unhoused communities. Yep. And for air conditioning and heating, if you think about extreme weather. Yes. You know, a comfortable place to be. Yes, absolutely. Libraries also help strengthen our local economies. I know I have booked free meeting space at various libraries throughout the course of my career. And you can also telework at libraries. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned the free internet. Often they also provide assistance with job searching and interviewing and things like that. And something a lot of folks don't even realize, libraries also help support English language learners because in addition to all of the free multilingual content that they have, many libraries also offer language classes and assistance with bilingual housing and employment applications. Libraries also preserve history. This is one of my favorite aspects of our local library. I remember... A few summers ago, one day I was visiting our Biloxi library and in the entrance area where they always have displays of like historical artifacts or like collections of books, you know, depending on what's going on in current events. There was this huge commission display about the Biloxi wait-ins when Dr. Gilbert Mason and the NAACP and others held wait-ins to protest the segregation of our beaches here in Biloxi and Gulfport between 1959 and 1963. I never learned about the wait-ins in school. This display led me to Dr. Mason's memoir, Beaches, Blood, and Ballots, which I talked about in one of our early Kindred's podcast episodes. So I just love that the library is a place to go that you can learn about your local history like that. And lastly, let's not forget about children's programming. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I bet y'all do this too. Before COVID, I took Avery to the library almost every weekend for story hour and art time. And that is where he got to do all the messy things that he loves to do that I hate to do at home, like paint and glue and glitter and all the stuff that gets everywhere. He gets to do it at the library. And he asks me all the time when we can go back and it makes me really sad because he doesn't really, he doesn't understand what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. Someday. I just keep saying it's closed. (laughs) But the thing about story hour and art time is it's not just about making the art or reading the books. Those are opportunities to bring folks together who not, who may not normally interact and they're chances for community members to connect. Totally. One of our really good friends is a librarian. 
Um, and she said that the reason they do baby story time is not really because it's mm. good for the babies, but because it's yep. good for the parents <laughs> of young yes. children to come and just have a place to gather. So you're totally right. It's not just about the educational part. It really is about connecting people. Yeah. When you think about it, libraries really are community hubs. So Mm -hmm. much happens at the library. So I want to offer this. When you hear about hashtags going around like defund the police and your first urge is to get defensive or shy away from learning more about it, I want you to consider that the police are just one element of what keeps communities safe and flourishing. Our over-reliance on policing to keep us safe is hurting our communities. And one of the ways it's hurting us is that when we give so much money to police, we cut it from another department, like public health, public works, schools, community centers, you can see where I'm going with this, Mm -hmm. and libraries. (laughs) And truly, when you consider all the benefits that libraries provide for the greater good of our communities, you can see that they're a crucial part of public safety and security. So if you don't have a library card, get one. The more you support your library by checking out books and attending programs, the more they can justify keeping their funding. And then call your local officials and tell them to increase library funding while you're at it. So that's my little cheerleader. I love it. (laughs) Speech for the library. Yes. Well, I'm going to do a slight encore because I loved what you just shared and echo all of it that libraries do so many things to support us and things that we probably have left off of this list that they do. Yes, absolutely. There's so much more. Yeah. But one in particular I wanted to share is that in some places, librarians are emergency first responders, Um, which goodness, that seems like going above and beyond. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So in certain parts of the country, librarians are trained to spot the symptoms of a drug overdose and to administer the, the drug naloxone oh that makes me sad yeah but if you think about like the time that it takes to call ems or call Mm -hmm. you know the police to come they can actually administer that drug and save people's lives while Mm -hmm. they're waiting for ems to come so there was actually a bill introduced in 2017 by representative sean maloney from new york called the life-saving librarians act that would provide federal funding to train librarians in areas hard hit by drug trafficking and equip them with the medicine that they need. So while you're reaching out to your elected officials, you can mention this too. Yeah. (laughs) You can be a (laughs) co-sponsor. Yeah. And one other public thing I wanted to mention here, I don't know if this is true where you are in other places, but in Wake County in North Carolina, librarians are being trained to be contact tracers to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. That makes total sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's happening here or not, but that makes a lot of sense. They really just always step up to the plate. You know, Mm -hmm. I think the stereotype of librarians is loving books and that's true, but it's really about loving the community and the people. Yes, absolutely. with all we're asking them to do, we really should be paying our librarians a lot more. So Mm -hmm. related to that, I wanted to talk about, um, or maybe riff off of what you mentioned at the very end about defunding the police. And I love how you put it in the context of the services that the library provides and, Think about everything that you just shared, how creative and innovative and responsive libraries are to the needs of a community and just how much more responsive they could be if they had more funding. Mm-hmm. So the, the conversations about defunding the police have been reminding me of some of the conversations we would often have about the federal budget as a moral document when I was working in global health advocacy, because we were advocating for 
increases to foreign assistance programs that would improve health outcomes in communities around the world. So we would look at this federal budget as a pie chart, and there would be this tiny little sliver. Like, it wasn't even represented in the pie. It was one of those pie charts they had to pull out the tiny piece and then Mm. show, you know, like the little (laughs) tiny (laughs) invisible part that was for um, development programs Mm -hmm. next to this humongous slice of funding that was for defense spending. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm starting to look at police budgets in the context of cities, it's it's almost the same. It's almost the exact same visual of just disproportionate resources going to police, just like to our military. So if we really want to transform our communities and our country, what investments and divestments do we need to make for that to become a reality? And for me, that's what the yep. defund the police movement is is about that's how i understand it so i'm very new to this um mm-hmm. Me and too. I'm, I'm very new to defunding the police as one strategy to think about abolishing the police um and i want to learn more about it so if this is something new for you just hang tight um there's a really great recommendation i think ashley you've listened to this too i did i was so glad that you suggested this as your pick today because it's great uh, that we love Call Your Girlfriend, the podcast, mm-hmm. and they cover so many important issues and have just amazing experts on their show. And there's one on police abolition. And again, I had never really heard this term or understood it. So Ann Friedman interviews um, Miriam Kaba, who is an organizer and educator, and she calls herself an abolitionist. And her journey is really interesting. She started mm-hmm. working out working in uh, domestic violence work in New York City. And what she found was that the survivors of domestic violence really were not happy with what they were being offered in terms of reporting the violence. They did not want to report the perpetrator to the police. These were often like people that they loved. They just wanted Mm -hmm. the violence to end without harming the person who was harming them. My goodness, does that not make sense? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to... I don't want to use the same tactic to harm the person who's harming me. My goodness. Mm -hmm. So the more she learned about um, what she calls the criminal punishment system, not criminal justice system, she was looking at the ways that black youth in her community were being treated unfairly, how going to uh, juvenile justice systems into the detention center or to jail was like ruining people's lives Mm -hmm. and how solutions based in the system were not what the community wanted or needed and that they were actually dangerous and beyond reforming. So she says in the interview, um, this is a quote from her, the cops exist to control and contain particular groups of people for the interests of the ruling class and to protect the property of the ruling class in the state. So when she hears people asking questions like, why do these murders of unarmed black people keep happening? Her response is, because that is their work. And she just keeps saying throughout the thing, like police reform doesn't work because reform is asking them not to do the job that they're tasked to do, which is what she, you know, the the controlling the property um, and controlling people. So if this whole thing makes you uncomfortable because maybe you have um, police in your family, that's my experience. Or if you're afraid of like just chaos, (laughs) that makes sense. Um, police are so ingrained in our culture and in our media. Ashley, I remember you talking about the podcast running from cops. Um, yes. That examined just the unethical tactics of the TV show cops, which was running since 1989. And did it not just get canceled? 
Yes, after a thousand episodes. A thousand episodes. I grew up with that show on our TV every week. Yes, same here. As a young it child. Was like every afternoon. It came on around the same time every day, and it came on after the local news or something. Yes. And so it would just be the thing that was on after the family watched the news, and so yes. it became part of the background noise of our house. It was not great. So, you know, I mean, this stuff started when we were really young and it mm-hmm. continues to start when kids are really young. And you and I mm-hmm. have been talking about being parents of young white children, how early and often the importance of police officers in the community is ingrained in our kids' media and in their imaginations. So there's been mm-hmm. conversation about Paw Patrol. I think you and I were talking about this the other day. And, yeah. you know, it seems harmless, right? It's a kid's cartoon show about about puppies. But yeah. But one of the puppies is dressed like a police officer. Right. And, and of, he's like the main puppy. Right. Too. And of course it's a boy. So and of course it's a boy. So yeah, like you could be like, oh, it's harmless. It's just a TV show. But it really reinforces this idea that cops are essential, that they're friendly and good and that they catch like quote unquote bad guys. Yeah. So I was really thinking about this last week because we sat down as a family to watch the CNN and Sesame Street special about racism, this town hall. Yeah. And so I heard about it. We didn't watch it. Fair. Fair. I don't think you're quite ready. We we barely were, honestly. It was not geared towards really, really tiny children. But yeah, it gave us an opportunity to, to talk about racism and the history of racism and slavery in this country. And so... Sammy asked us, well, why don't the police take these bad people who are doing these bad things to jail? And so we had to explain to her that sometimes police officers are unfair and treat people unfairly and that they hurt people with dark skin. And it was just like the reality of police brutality bumped right up against all of these ideals of police that were taught as privileged white kids at a young age. And I should say that Miriam is clear in her interview that black youth do not share Mm -hmm. the same idea of cops because they see how the police actually treat people in their communities. But, you know, for white privileged kids whose only interactions with the police are on TV or or during like a Halloween safety talk, which is what Sam's had, it's Mm -hmm. really important to monitor what they're consuming and to have these difficult conversations about racism Early and often. It's definitely not easy, and it's not made easier by these depictions that are so inaccurate being in their in their little imaginations when they're little. Yeah. So police abolition might sound kind of scary, especially if we're picturing the world that we're currently living in just without the police, but that's not what abolition is about. It's about so much more than that. It's about reimagining the world. And I love what Miriam says in this interview about the world that she and other abolitionists want to create. And so I'll end with this quote from her. She says, what abolitionists talk about is the importance of thinking of abolition as a restructured world where everything has shifted, where people have what they need, where people are living lives, where we figured out how to do conflict resolution amongst ourselves without calling the cops where we have enough to eat and shelter, where people have good schools, where people have medical care when they need it at whatever time and at no cost. So it's a vision of a restructured world. And within that restructured world, when these conditions have shifted, we will no longer need these punishing institutions because we will have figured out how to interact and relate to each other and be in the right relationship in ways that we can't imagine right now in the world we exist in. I don't know about y'all, but that's the world I want to create. 
listened to this episode too. And as she was talking, I remember exactly what I was doing while I was listening with my headphones on. And as she was talking, I remember getting chills and thinking, this sounds like what Jesus was describing as his vision for creating heaven on earth. Mm. Right? Yes. Like it's, we've got to really check those impulses we have of fear and uh, defensiveness around these really liberatory ideas and at least be open to conversations. And like you, that is the world I want to create as well. It's so true because the fear blocks the imagination. Yes. And so when we remove the fear and we move into love, it allows us to go into the space of saying, what can we imagine together? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll leave it there. And that is it for our Kindred's Picks. We will be back in a few weeks with more recommendations from our summer of learning. Katie, I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 